love, peace, and joy. And each week we meet another historical person from the Bible. This week we're introduced to Isaiah. So Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. And that message of salvation is what Isaiah proclaims throughout his message. Isaiah was the historiographer for King Uzziah of Judah. Uh, He's a details person, obviously. His whole job is to record the acts of the king. But everything in Isaiah's life changes around 740 B.C., that's 740 years before Christ. King Uzziah dies. God calls Isaiah to be a prophet. Isaiah 6.1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and his robe filled the temple. Uh, This time in Judah was one of financial prosperity and spiritual depravity. The kingdom had long been divided into two kingdoms. Isaiah lived in Jerusalem, which was the capital of Judah. And one commentator said of Isaiah that his head was in in the clouds, but his feet were on the ground. What they're saying is he saw things from God's perspective, but he was still part of this world. He, He wasn't connected to what was going on around him. Uh, The book of Isaiah that you have in your Bible spans 60 years. Early church tradition has Isaiah dying a martyr's death around 699 B.C. And that's actually before the Babylonian exile takes place. Meaning that if we follow that tradition, the final 16 chapters of Isaiah, which encompasses Babylon's defeat of Judah, were very much prophetic since he was dead when they occurred. If we look to Isaiah 1.1, we'll read that the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Isaiah's ministry as a prophet saw times where God delivered the nation from certain defeat, but also a time where destruction and exile was prophesied. That means that there needs to be hope and comfort throughout the book. Even though a very hard and difficult time is coming, a promised Messiah will one day rescue and redeem the people of Israel and Judah. So today's message focuses on Isaiah's ministry, specifically during a time with King Ahaz. And we can learn a little bit about Ahaz from 2 Chronicles 8, 1-4, which talks about him. It says this, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the the Lord's sight, like his ancestor David. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made cast images in the balls. He burned incense in the valley of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire imitating the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. He sacrificed and burned incense in the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. So we read there that King Ahaz of Judah became king at the age of 20, ruled for 16 years, and we see that the Bible records him as an evil wicked and idolatrous ruler. Although, although he was at a time of financial prosperity, it was very quickly becoming a, t- a time of na- national instability. 
This instability was caused by the terrifying expansion and emergence of, of the Assyrian Empire. So let, so let me tell you a bit now about, about Assyria. At the time of King Ahaz's rule, Assyria was, was quickly becoming a superpower in the Middle East. Tiglath-Pileser III come to power, and he had completely revolutionized how military looked. It used to be that kings relied on their citizens' availability for when they would go to war. For example, during, during harvesting, you don't go to war because your army is harvesting their crops. Tiglath-Pileser III changed all that because he introduced the professional military, people who were paid, paid to be sold. They could go, go to war for as long as they needed, whenever they needed. They needed. He also furnished his army with superior weapons, superior training, and even matching arm. In fact, I think I read he, this period of time was the invention of the army boot, allowing for soldiers just to be able to fight in any season and on any terrain. Well, they were de- decimating and dom- dominating anyone who stood in their way, and they, they were a terrifying army to behold as well. When, when Tiglath Laser who's also sometimes called Poole, took his army to battle. They would also line up in, in formation. This was also, was also new. Um, they had incredible engineers who could build weapons of war like siege ramps. In fact, there is, is still a siege ramp that you can find today near Lakish. Um, that, is, that is one that Sennacherib built um, later on in the history of Assyria. And it far outlived the, the um, place we're trying to dis- destroy. That's how good their engineers were. There was very little that stood in the name of the, the Assyrian War machine. To make matters worse, a pervasive military tactic of Syrians was, was terror. They did terrifying things to the people that they conquered. Things that played with, with your mind and made you especially terrified, maybe in hopes that you would never, ever, ever want to stand, stand up against Assyria. A common boast of the Assyrian kings was, I just destroyed, I, I devastated, and burned with fire. Those these towns and towns and regions dared to, to resist Assyrian rule. So the Assyrian Empire was growing during, during this period of King Ahaz, and a plan was devised by two close na- neighboring kings who, who wanted to form a coalition and stand up to Assyria. This was the kingdom of Aram, and also the northern kingdom, which was Israel. So King Reason of Aram and King Pekah of Israel wanted to stand up to Assyria. They formed this coalition together. And their first act the coalition was to wage war against Jerusalem with King Ahaz. Well, why do they want to wage war against Jerusalem? They know that Ahaz is loyal to Assyria, and they feel like if they defeat him, they can be a puppet king on the throne, and now now a three-nation coalition fight Assyria. It's at this point in history that God speaks to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah. As understandably concerned, agitated, terrified, pre- preparing for. Um, where is he? He's actually at the end of a conduit by an upper pool. We read that in Isaiah 7. And that, that is where he's standing when Isaiah and his son come to him with this word from, from God. It begins in verse 4. Say to him, calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly. Because of these two moldering subs of, of firebrands, the fierce anger of reason and Aram, the, the son of Remaliah. For Aram, along with Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah, plotted harm, harm against you. They say, let us go up against Judah, terrorize it, conquer it for ourselves. 
then, then we can install Tabiel's son as king on it. This is, this is what the Lord says. It will not happen. It will not occur. The head of Aram is Damascus. The head of Damascus is reason. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. So just by, just by way of understanding, when we're talking, talking about Ephraim, talking about the northern, northern kingdom or Israel. So God has spoken to King, to King Ahaz, spoken about these, these two kings. He's called them smoldering firebrands. That, that, that is, they've lost this of their power. They're, they're not going to be able to do much. And he speaks once again, again to Ahaz to give him a bit, a bit more comfort. He wants to give, give Ahaz a proof or like a sign, something to put confidence in so, so he can rest in hope of God's promised deliverance. Verse 10, Then the Lord, Lord spoke again to Ahaz, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God, from the depths of Sheol to the heights of heaven. He could have asked for anything in all the world, some sort of a proof that he could trust us, God. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not t- test the Lord. Does that sound like a religious answer to you? Like a pi- pious answer? He's actually not honoring God all with what, he, what he's saying here. God asks you a sign. Or, and then you should, if God tells you to ask for a sign, then not ask for a sign would be test, testing God. Um, Ahaz refuses to obey her. And so God decides, all right, I'll give you a sign. I'll come up with one. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my, my God? Therefore, for the Lord himself will give you a sign. The verb will conceive have a son and name, name him Emmanuel. By, by the time he learns to reject, reject what is bad, choose what is, is good, he will be eat, eating butter and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad, bad and choose what is good, the land of the two, two kings you dread will be abandoned. Okay, okay, so a lot of are familiar with the sign that's given where he says that the virgin will conceive, have, have him, and name, name him Emmanuel. And when we see that word in verse 14, virgin, we automatically assume that the virgin birth will be what is the big sign for King Ahaz and everybody else in Jerusalem who hears about the prophecy. Not the case, though. And that's because the Hebrew term that is, that is used would have been understood best by that generation as young men. So people of Israel, after hearing the prophecy that was given by Ahaz, they likely would have, would have understood the way. Um, there is a lady who has, has not yet given birth, but she's going to give birth. And when she does, from the time she gives, she gives birth until the, until the time when that child is old enough to understand right, right from wrong, instead of that period of the time, God will stop this threat. By, by then, that's when this will be over. So it's a period, uh, an exact period of time that they're thinking about. Therefore, this prophecy was more about a period of t- time and the timing of it than about looking for a virgin birth. We also have to note that, that they had the name Emmanuel in the prophecy, God with us. We don't have a record of a child in that period being named Emmanuel from the prophecy, but what we know, we know that as God to them and showed himself, they would say over and over again, yes, God is with us. So that might, might have been the original audience in Isaiah's day, around 730 BC would have understood this. So let's just jump into a time machine and see what they might have been going through as these words of comfort and hope, hope came up. They have heard the stories of the Assyrian war machine. 
and has got to have put a lot of fear into their hearts. They know that their king, king yeah. army is preparing for war against the two northern arm, the two nations of Aram and Israel. And they're scared for that, for that as well. They're not living at a good point in history. There's a scary war course coming there. And then, at that point, God speaks to them through Isaiah. These will not ultimately be successful in their attack against Jerusalem. There will be evidence God is with them, fight for them, for the Israelites. There is hope. God has spoken. God's God's best help. But King Ahaz actually decides to trust in Assyria over his God, God, Yahweh. Isaiah or Ahaz thinks that he thinks that he's already here. For the record, the rest he is not. His decisions in this matter can be traced to Jerusalem's eventual downfall. Here's what he does. He goes to Assyria for help. He says, look, these two people are plotting again. They're plotting again against me. Come and save, save me. Take out these two nations and we'll be okay. And he, t- and he takes the gold from the, tem- the temple and the silver from the temple and brings it as, as tribute to try to make it so that, so that um, he won't, won't be attacked. Essentially, Ahaz comes up with his own plans to save his, his kids. He, he takes no comfort in the prophetic word God gave to him, for he puts no trust into what God said. Ahaz acts and trusts based on his own ideas, based on what he believes to be smart. So the prophecy continues in verse 17. The Lord will bring on you, your, your people, house of your, your father, such a time as has never been seen since Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria coming. And if you open up your Bible, your Bible is going to be 18 to 20, 25. You get a picture of what, it, what it's going to look when the king of Assyria shows up. God's deliverance would be short-lived. The promise of Assyria will, will come. What actually happens in, in history? Wars, wars waged, losses are suffered, but Judah does not fall. Uh, reading from the, the Bible's commentary, within about three years, which you could say is nine months for pregnancy, and two or two or three years, and boy would know the difference between good and evil, that alliance was broken. It was broken in 732 when Tiglath-Pileser III destroyed Damascus. And after Tiglath-Pileser had defeated Ram and put reason to death, Ahaz went to Damascus to meet the Assyrian monarch. You can read about that in 2 Kings 16. Ahaz liked an altar he saw in Damascus and had a scabbard drawn so that a silver altar could be set up in Jerusalem. So what he did was he saw one of the Assyrian um, altars. They had a god called Ashdod that they worshipped. And me as a sign of loyalty, maybe it's because he thought Ashdod was stronger than Yahweh. He goes, clears out the tem- temple in Jerusalem, and has a um, altar to Ashdod built in that place instead. Uh, no wonder both Isaiah and God were very displeased with King Ahaz. Even after the alliance had been broken by Tiglath-Pileser, Judah held peace. Though Syria did not de- defeat Judah, she had to pay Assyria a heavy tribute. So Judah remains paying tribute throughout the lifetime of Ahaz. And his son Hezekiah faced the onslaught of a Syrian king named Zacharab, who boasted of having Hezekiah locked up like a caged bird in Jerusalem. However, we find out later that God miraculously delivers Hezekiah from, from Sinarab. Hezekiah is a letter out before the altar, and God causes this amazing, miraculous victory for those people. And in fact, Hezekiah was the only one who was able to stand up to Assyria at all in that whole region. It turns out that in the end, it would be Babylon who would defeat Judah. Isaiah the prophet lives through all of this. This is a period of time when he's alive. 
He's, he's prophesying, speaking God's truth through, through all this. If you're in Isaiah chapters 38 and 39, you can, you can begin to read about the foretelling of the Babylonian army who's on its way. God says, yes, they will be successful. They will defeat Judah. The people in Judah, Judah become not just prisoners of war, but they'll be relocated. One of the tactics of those days was to take a people out of their nation, out of everything that they knew, and put them in a whole new place. And that was one way to um, quiet rebellions and make it so that people didn't fight against because it was took, taking away their national identity. Um, they, didn't, um, they didn't have a country to fight for because they, they were living somewhere else. And so the people, people would have been to hear that coming. coming. And, and this was happening because God was almighty, because God was certain. God, God was actually using these kingdoms to discipline his people who, who had broken covenant so severely and repeatedly. Um, and whatever Babylon and nations did, God, God was going to hold them as accountable as well. You can read about that in your Bible too. So all hope is not, is not for Judah, although these were pretty dark times. They're about to go through a terrible period of history, yet, yet they're able to hold on to hope. Hope in what? Well, they have hope, hope that God saved them. Um, hope that they won't wander forever, but that one day they'll be home, home again. One day a remnant will, be ter- will return. And this hope en- endured with Ju- Judah and Israel throughout their exile. They've got the prophet's words. words. It was, this was going to ha- happen. But Isaiah didn't just say that, that the downfall would come. He also gave words, words of comfort. Comfort appears over and over overthrow the book of Isaiah. Words that said, there is going to be a redeemer. There's, there's good Messiah. Even when you're living off in this exiled land, away from everything that you grew up with and know and love, even when your children don't remember what it's like in Jerusalem, you have these words that God gave to Isaiah that you can read and be remind, reminded of and put your trust in God for. Uh, words like ones that are found in Isaiah 9, verse 6. six. They might have read them when they were living off in Babylon somewhere. For a child will be born for us. Son will be given, given to us, and the government will be, be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful, wonderful Counsel, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 730 years after Isaiah spoke, spoke these of hope, they were spoken again. And, and once again, they brought comfort. For Joseph was, was through probably the greatest trial of his life up to that point. Mary, his fiancée, was found to be with child. And I bet you that Joseph's world was turning upside down. Likely, in that moment for him, nothing was making sense. It wasn't the way it was supposed to be. But Matthew one twenty says this. After he had, he had considered things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a, in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She gave birth to a son, and you are to name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son. And they, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God, God is us. So the gospel writer, Matthew, has been inspired by God's Holy Spirit to take, take a prophecy given to wicked King Ahaz and show how, how it would be ultimately 
fulfilled by, by his own son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. 730 years prior, the nation of Judah saw prophecy as a promise to deliver them from, from Ephraim and Aram. But now the prophecy was that the Son of God would be born of a virgin so that he could save his people from their sins. That is why Jesus came, to, to save people. But not to save them from the Assyrians or from the people of his day, the Romans. He came to save people from the worst enemy of all, which is sin. For sin is what ultimately separates people from God, both now and forever. The wages of sin are far more serious than, than anything else that you or I will ever face. The gospel, which means the good news of Christianity, is, is that your battle with sin is one that Jesus has already fought and won. If you want your share in that victory, repent of your sins, turn away from them, ask Jesus to forgive you, and trust in his righteousness. For the Bible says that when we make Jesus the Lord of life, repenting of our sins and turning to him, believing that he's the son of God, all the just things, things he did become counted as your righteousness. Righteousness is placed on you. Sin doesn't have hold on you anymore. It's nailed to a cross. He can forgive you, call you holy and righteous. By his power of his Holy Spirit and by the help of the church, we can live faithful, obedient lives. Sin does not have to rule over us. That battle has been, has been fought and won by Jesus, Emmanuel, who has come to save us from our sin. So that good news becomes our constant hope. It is the best message of hope that you or I can offer for, to people we love, to people that God loves in this world. So we'll talk a, talk a bit about hope now this morning, morning because that's our theme. You know, God knows what you are up against weak. God knows what, what battles you are fighting. God has you his, his mess of hope. Jesus Christ has come to save you from your sins. Maybe you went to your problems and say, that's what I really need to save from. It's this battle against this week. Don't you see what I'm up against? Don't you see how it's possible that my whole world could come crashing down at any moment? I'm terrified. I'm scared. I need real help, help, not just help from sin. Well, maybe learn a lesson from Ahaz this morning. He, he was terrified of what Ephraim and Aram could do to him, what they could do to his nation. And, and likely his ter- terror was justified. He was, was up against some real problems. And God was, was willing to save him. God, God spoke to him. God gave him a sign. But what does Ahaz do? He placed place his whole self. He went out and trusted in Assyria. He built an altar in the temple in Jerusalem, Assyria being God. And so our lives and the battles that we face, I need to say that sin is a major threat. It's the eternal threat. The, the problems that we face, yes, there's real things, things that are up against real battles, but they're temporary. We want to make sure that our hearts are clean and, clean and right with God. That is the, the main thing. We want to put our, put our, our hope in God above, above all and not look to, look to himself for hope. Ahaz looked to himself, himself for something and it didn't work, work out. For Jesus has given us the greatest sign, the greatest proof, proof it all. The sign he gives us is that, is that he, he did sin by, by dying a sinner's death and then he rose from the dead on the third, third day. That is the proof, that is the sign. This is a promise that, that we can be saved from our sin, sin. This is a promise that we can have an, an abundant life. A promise that when we follow 
Christ. He cares for us. And the troubles of this world are passing away. Yes, they hurt, they hurt for a season, and we do go through difficult things, but they are temporary. And, and with these things that we go, we go through, um, they matter to God as well. It's, it's not as if God says, well, I've forgiven you your sins, sin, so none of that matters. No, the Bible says, cast, cast your cares on God because he cares about you. It says that, that we can go to God and we, and we can make requests of him, and Jesus will help us. It just, it just doesn't give us the same kind of um, absolution against sin. Like, if, if, you, if you need a job next week, absolutely, let's go, let's go to God and let's pray for that job. But we know that when we ask for sins to be forgiven, they are forgiven. For a job, we just say, God, we need you to provide for us. Please do this. We know that you love us. Take care of us. And sin is the biggest battle that there is. So we have hope. Because we know, certainly, that Jesus will return. And at his, his return, those who have tr- trusted in him will find out what it feels like to live without sin, without fear, without pain. That's the, the promise given in Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe, wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no, no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will, will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. That is, is what I am hoping for. That's what I'm looking forward to. Christ return when everything will ultimately be made, made right. Now, I know that there are still things that many of you are of in, in the middle right now. God has promised us that we will not be alone in these, in these situations. God with you. That, that's the promise given in Isaiah 7 and then repeated in, in Matthew 1. His name is called Emmanuel. God is with us. We don't have to be alone. Many years in exile, Israel had to pray and trust the words that God had spoken to them through Isaiah. And so they put their hope in a promise that one day a redeemer was coming to save Israel. They were hoping in God's promise of Emmanuel, God, God with us. And so we're going to join them in that hope today and look forward to the coming reign of Emmanuel when Jesus will return. And we can join in with the rejoicing for Jesus. Jesus has to save his people. And he will come again to bring us, bring us into eternity where sin, death, grief, and pain will be no more. So we get to join in the singing of the song, O come, O come, Emmanuel.